Okay, we're winding down this topic. Uh, we're get, we have two more studies after tonight. And then the Wednesday after Labor Day, SD and I are going to be out of town for a couple of days. So we won't have a Bible study on that first Wednesday of September. Then the following Wednesday night, uh, we'll start a study in the book of Exodus. So that's kind of the plan of action. Tonight, what we're going to do is we are going to uh, once again, look at these um, consequences of a postmodern world, and we're basically trying to understand the connection between human beings and the sharing of our earth. And what we want to do tonight is talk a little bit about the equality crisis. Next week, we want to talk a little bit about the ecological crisis and then the economic crisis, and that will kind of round out this slide that we have been using. So what we uh, did last week is we primarily looked at a video by Brian McLaren, and uh, he mentioned about the rise of authoritarianism. And just to refresh your memory, uh, he talked about how authoritarianism works, fear of an enemy, either real or imagined, division, there's an enemy among us, and then distraction from the truth through various means of propaganda. And then lastly, the suppression of dissent, that is pushing back those who are critical of whoever the authoritarian person or regime is. So um, we talked a little bit about living in a post-pandemic world and the pressure it has put on us since uh, 2019. So tonight, what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about the equality crisis. And I wanted to talk about that specifically in relationship uh, to its connection to racism. So tonight, what we're going to do is I'm going to lay an introduction. Uh, uh, and then we're going to look at another video, not as long as last week, um, from an individual that is on the cutting edge of trying to make uh, us aware of the different dynamics of racism, a uh, man by the name of Eddie Glau Jr. I'll, uh, I'll talk about him in a second. Uh, so what I want to do tonight is I want to um, get uh, started with looking at the equality crisis uh, by asking the question, well, what is equality? Now, that's a pretty complex uh, word. And the reason it's complex is it can go in a couple different directions. If we're talking about equality in terms of justice, uh, fairness, and those type of things, it, it's one thing. If we're talking about equality as it relates to anthropological questions, like uh, can men and women do the same thing physically, uh, that's a different angle. So we must always ask the question when we're talking about equality, what are we talking about? Equal in what way? So I think it's um, easy enough to talk about equality in relationship to equal work, equal opportunity, equal pay. But what we're seeing now, especially with a lot of the conversation regarding uh, the transgender issue and someone who has transitioned and wants to play a sport, you have a man who has transitioned to a woman there are females that are, um, they are rejecting that because it seems to be unfair because a man has 
certain physical qualities and strengths that it's not a level playing field. So when we talk about equality in relationship to our God-given abilities, uh, the way we are wired, the way we are created, that's a whole different thing. So most of you know how much I love basketball, but I, I cannot find equality with LeBron James or any other pro basketball player. I don't have those physical capabilities. So for me to complain about, well, they're not giving me a chance to play on the Cleveland Cavaliers is a joke because there, there's a difference between myself, five foot nine versus guys that are six foot nine. And there, it's just not equal. So equality is a difficult thing unless you add something very important to that phrase. And this is where our founding document, the constitution and other founding documents in the early history they add endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And all of a sudden, when we introduce the concept of a creator God and the type of equality that God offers to us through justice, fairness, uh, those type of things, well, then now that becomes a little bit clearer because it doesn't matter whether a person is short or tall in, in relationship to sports or strong or weak or all those type of things. It, it's talking about something else. So the way I want to begin tonight is I want us to go to the book of Genesis just for a second. And I want us to look at Genesis chapter one. So I referenced this a little bit on Sunday uh, in our message. <clears throat> I want to come back to it. And I want you to come down to Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So those two verses there talks about being made in the image of God. It talks about human capabilities over other parts of the created order, uh, the animal world, and so forth. Uh, it talks a little bit about uh, having dominion or ruling or caretaking over the earth. Uh, as we think about uh, all the things that need to be done uh, to take care of the earth, uh, ruling over is not the idea of abusing the creation. And if, if you didn't see Sunday's message, if you catch it up, catch up on YouTube or whatever, we talked about the sacred earth on this past Sunday. And so uh, the idea of being commissioned, sort of like a park ranger, is commissioned to take care of the national parks. So mankind has these abilities and it's related to be an image bearer and it's related to both male and female carrying this same capability. So equality has to be talked about 
in terms of our own constitution endowed with certain inalienable rights and biblical equality is the idea that there is given to us as human beings made in God's image certain abilities to be able to live our life out on earth. So does that make sense so far? Okay. So since you're in uh, Genesis, go over to chapter four for a moment. It's interesting that this idea of equality is reflected in the Cain and Abel story in Genesis chapter four. Now, you know the story that uh, Adam makes love to Eve. Um, she becomes pregnant, gives birth to Cain, then gives birth to Abel. And these two boys, in a moment of sibling rivalry, finds Cain with immense amount of anger striking out at Abel, and Abel dies. If you come to chapter four, it's interesting the way God approaches Cain. It says here in verse nine, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And in his next words is something very interesting. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And in that statement there is part of the essence of what it means to treat each other equally. Yes, you are your brother's keeper, Abel. Yes, that's true. Then notice how God reacts. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So God reacts and he says, I can hear the cries of your brother Abel, even as his blood has been spilled out on the ground. So he, he is very demonstrative in the way he responds to Cain. And it seems as though that part of this created order that's very early in the text here is, yes, I am my brother's keeper. Yes, I'm responsible for taking care of my brother. And yes, we are to be equal in, in God's eyes. And of course, there's a lot of other uh, dynamics in this story that I don't want to get into tonight. But here's the idea that both Cain and Abel are equally made in God's image. Cain and Abel are equally valuable in God's eyes. Cain and Abel are equal in each other's eyes as well. I'm not going to turn to Acts chapter 9. You know the story where Saul is going to Damascus. And he's going to bring persecution on the early church. It's interesting the question that God uh, asks him as he's knocked off his horse. He has this uh, moment where uh, the Lord appears to Saul, and he asks the question, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is a fascinating question, because he's not really attacking God as, as much as he's attacking people. And so, uh, yet there's this um, connection between the people and God and his response to this uh, persecution, which is not treating people um, uh, with, with the um, respect of being an image bearer of God. So I think this is a way to get into this equality topic a little bit. 
the last point on the slide is if we do not think constitutionally, all people are created and endowed with certain inalienable rights. And if we don't think biblically using uh, the idea of being made in God's image, it is then easy to dismiss or degrade or devalue other human beings as not being of equal status uh, with uh, ourselves. Now, I think that's what we have been laying the groundwork over the past several weeks is what we have seen lately is there are certain people who are in power that want to maintain that power. There are certain people that are willing to degrade other people uh, who are not like them to keep them in their place. So we've talked about white nationalism. We've talked a little bit about authoritarianism. And uh, tonight we're gonna to talk a little bit more about racism. And racism comes into this story quite uh, interestingly you, uh, by individuals that use the Bible quite extensively to justify uh, mistreating blacks and uh, first peoples and that type of thing. So what I wanna do is I want to play you just a short um, a sh very short part of the Reflections of History podcast from today, ironically enough. So um, Abraham Lincoln uh, made a statement on today, August the 17th in 1858. And John Meacham talks about how very early on Lincoln was um, very eloquent in um, expressing the idea of the equality of all people. So let's listen to this. It's only a couple minutes long. And what we're going to do is we're going to um, hear a very eloquent expression by Abraham Lincoln on this day uh, back in 1858 in his defense of uh, the release of slaves from slavery. Listen. The decade was dwindling, but tensions were rising. Abraham Lincoln was seeking a seat in the U.S. Senate. His opponent was the Democratic star Stephen Douglas, known as the Little Giant. Lincoln was firmly anti-slavery. Douglas was an advocate of popular sovereignty, which would have opened the Western territories to slavery. Essential to Lincoln's argument was his perennial conviction that the Declaration of Independence applied not just to some, but to all, and all included black Americans. At two o'clock on this date in 1858 at Lewiston, Illinois, Lincoln argued that the founders had intended to put slavery on a path to ultimate extinction. This is what he said. The Declaration of Independence was formed by the representatives of American liberty from 13 states of the Confederacy, 12 of which were slaveholding communities. We need not discuss the way or the reason of their becoming slaveholding communities. It is sufficient for our purpose that all of them greatly deplored the evil and that they placed a provision in the Constitution which they supposed would gradually remove the disease by cutting off its source. This was the abolition of the slave trade. So general was the conviction, the public determination to abolish the African slave trade, that the provision which I have referred to as being placed in the Constitution declared that it should not be abolished prior to the year 
1808. A constitutional provision was necessary to prevent the people through Congress from putting a stop to the traffic immediately at the close of the war. Now, if slavery had been a good thing, would the fathers of the Republic have taken a step calculated to diminish its beneficent influences among themselves and snatch the boon wholly from their posterity? These communities, by their representatives in Old Independence Hall, said to the whole world of men, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This was their majestic interpretation of the economy of the universe. This was their lofty and wise and noble understanding of the justice of the Creator to His creatures. Yes, gentlemen, to all His creatures, to the whole great family of man. In their enlightened belief, nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on and degraded and imbruted by its fellows. They grasped not only the whole race of man then living, but they reached forward and seized upon the farthest posterity. They erected a beacon to guide their children and their children's children, and the countless myriads who should inhabit the earth in other ages. Wise statesmen as they were, they knew the tendency of prosperity to breed tyrants. And so they established these great self-evident truths that when in the distant future some man, some faction, some interest should set up the doctrine that none but rich men or none but white men were entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, their posterity might look up again to the Declaration of Independence and take courage to renew the battle which their fathers began so that truth and justice and mercy and all the humane and Christian virtues might not be extinguished. Words that instruct us still. So, boy, wouldn't it be nice to hear politicians be able to be eloquent like that again? Oh my gosh. Just was very, very um, profound in the way he explained uh, the founding fathers and their perspective on this nation. And uh, so any thoughts on that, uh, that podcast uh, from today? Any thoughts on that? Okay, so we're going to look at another couple of uh, scriptures. So when we talk about equality, we also have to deal with the problem of racism. And I believe that racism arises out of the rejection of the Imago Dei of all human beings. So the Imago Dei is a phrase that captures the idea of being created in the image of God, Imago, image, Dei being God. And um, you'll see this phrase that uh, the Imago Dei is that which allows us to treat each other with equality. Now, in the Civil War, much of the Bible was taken literally, and then there was 
certain scriptures that were repeated in order to support slavery. And I wanted to show you just two of them. There's more than that that we could turn to. But um, as we think of this problem of white privilege uh, and white nationalism, here's two passages of scripture that were used uh, back in the day to defend the Christianity of uh, groups like the Ku Klux Klan and so on and so forth. So go back to Genesis for a moment, to chapter nine. In Genesis chapter nine, this is an interesting and strange passage of scripture. In Genesis chapter nine, this is after the flood account. God has made a covenant with Noah and all of a sudden, it talks about Noah's family that came out of the ark. Take a look at verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. So that's given to us in a parenthetical um, explanation there. And these were the sons of Noah, three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Then you have this episode in verse 20, where Noah gets drunk. It says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders and walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and here it is, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So that phrase right there uh, sets apart one line of humanity, uh, the idea of humanity coming from these three sons, one line of humanity is cursed. It goes on, verse 26. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave to them. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of uh, Japheth. So the reasoning goes like this. You see, from the very beginning, there was always certain people that were destined to be slaves, okay? So you can distinguish. You can uh, be show inequality because there it is right from the very beginning. Okay, well, when we look at this, what we are seeing is a very early account of something that happened, which seems to be quite extreme in the way Noah reacts by pronouncing a curse upon um, uh, the, the line of Canaan. So anyways, that's one part. And you, then you could go through uh, passages in the Torah where there's slavery and there's commandments on how to uh, treat your slaves and so forth. But I just want to get over to the New Testament to show you that it's there as well. So in the book of Ephesians, you have in chapter six, and, I, and you're familiar with this, I know you are, but <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter six, there's a household code 
that Paul is alluding to, that the responsibilities of people in the household uh, are uh, to be in submission. So uh, he will first say in chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he begins with wives. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. Then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then he comes down to slaves, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So three groups of people are singled out, wives, children, and slaves. And all of them are to be in submission to the head of the household. Does that make sense? Okay, so the household has a code. The man is the head of the household and all these other groupings in the household are to be submissive. Well, that was used again to, um, to say slaves are to be obedient to their masters. It's right there. It's right in the scriptures. Just read it literally, that type of thing. So historically, it was not out of the ordinary for groups um, like the KKK um, and other white supremacist organizations to use rhetoric like this to defend its uh, actions and to defend the inequality of human beings. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So we could close our Bible now and then go, okay, that's what it says. But what we have seen is God is always in the process of the progress of humanity. It always is in the progress of uh, making the world a better place if we follow his lead. So this is couched in context. It's couched in a time where that was the norm, but that doesn't mean the norm was to be set for all time and eternity. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, Larry, yeah. then... What do they do with the book of Philemon? Mm -hmm. So what you have is a little bit of progress, just a little bit. So Paul will write to Philemon about a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. If, if there's those of you who don't remember what the book of little one chapter really uh, of uh, Philemon is all about. So Paul writes to Philemon to accept Onesimus back without, uh, without punishment. And his appeal is, well, Onesimus uh, is a slave, but he's also a brother in Christ. So um, the idea of mercy, the idea of um, grace, that type of thing on behalf of Onesimus comes from the fact that Onesimus is a, a follower of Christ and part of the family of God, even though he's uh, technically still a slave of Philemon. So I would imagine uh, that groups that justified slavery would counter this with this logic. Yeah, he's a brother in Christ. No doubt about it, but he's still a slave. And, um, and the idea of who the slave owners were 
and how they treated their slaves differed really, even during the time of slavery in our own country. You had some that were real tyrants, and then you had others that um, treated their slaves more like they were part of the family. So I would imagine, Shelley, that the response would be, and I can't prove this, but this is what I imagine, uh, the response would be, well, that does not dissolve the, uh, the institution of slavery. It's just saying that this man was a brother in Christ and should be treated accordingly. Does that okay. make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. He wasn't the brother. Yeah, so what Esty just said, because uh, I don't could probably couldn't hear her comment. If Onesimus was not a brother in Christ, perhaps Philemon would be justified then to treat Onesimus differently because he was a runaway slave. So you know, we're kind of arguing from silence here. You know, it's hard to say how Philemon would react if he, if Paul didn't use the idea that he was a brother in Christ. But Paul does use that argument. So Paul uses a little bit of um, technique here to get <laughs> Philemon, if he has an angry heart, to soften up. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. All right, so here's what I wanna do. Um, I wanna to give to you this um, quote from Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, she says, Jesus, brown Jesus, indigenous Jesus, colonized Jesus is here to set the image of God free on earth. Then she goes on and, and she says, biblical texts have often been used as a tool of oppression and marginalization. This is not the good news laid out in scripture. Instead, Lisa reminds us that biblical texts were written by brown colonized people. Therefore, we must read scripture from this perspective to understand God's actual good news for ourselves and our neighbors. In other words, even the way we read scripture is from a white perspective, from a privileged perspective. And what she's trying to say is, if you read the scripture from the other side, people that are marginalized and mistreated, the good news is that God comes to bring justice and from that equality. Okay. All right. So if you ever watch uh, MSNBC in the morning, on Morning Joe, one of his frequent guests is Eddie Gloud Jr., born on September 4th, 1968. He is an individual that has specialized in uh, African history. Uh, he is a professor at Princeton. And uh, he did, this goes back to 2016. He talks a little bit about racism and the soul of America. And I thought uh, just watching a part of this would be uh, helpful on talking about the constant need uh, to work for equality, since that's the topic that we are talking about tonight. So this is at a at Westminster Presbyterian Church in 2016. 
Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 36 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming events can be found online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Dr. Eddie Cloud, Jr. is the William S. Todd Professor of Religion and African American Studies at Princeton University and chair of its Department of African American Studies. Born and raised in the coastal town of Moss Point, Mississippi, and he told me just before we came out that there are seven people who were who are from Moss Point, who are in Minneapolis, who are here today. So thank you, Moss Point, for being here. From Moss Point, Mississippi, he went to Morehouse College at the age of 16. He graduated with a degree in political science, then earned a master's degree in African American studies from Temple University and a PhD in religion from Princeton University. He's the author of the award-winning book, in a Shade of Blue, Pragmatism and the Politics of Black America, and co-editor with Cornell West, a previous forum speaker some years ago, of African American Religious Thought, an anthology. His latest book is Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the Soul of America. He has described his vision of what it means to be a public intellectual, to be in love with ideas with the aim of making the world better. Today, he will speak about the deep impact of race on the soul of America. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Eddie Gloud, Jr. How y'all doing? I'm a, I'm a country boy from, from Mississippi, and uh, I can't begin to tell you how honored I am to have some of my home peoples <laughs> here. Could y'all stand up if you're here from, these are folks from Mossport. Sometimes folks want to know your journey. How did you come from this small town and end up at Princeton? Well, it has something to do with the powerful people in that small town, uh, some of whom have landed in this beautiful city. So I want to thank you all for coming out to support me. Reverend Hart Anderson, thank you for your prophetic witness for this amazing congregation, for this extraordinary institution. I want to thank Shelley and Lindy, Linda. For, for, for being so wonderful and getting me from the Hyatt Regency. We took that walk <laughs> through all that construction to get here. Thank you for the lovely music to kind of bless this space as we begin to make this hard journey together. I want to thank all the staff, all the folks behind the scenes that have made this possible. It's been a complicated couple of hours for me. I started this journey yesterday at four o'clock in the morning on my way to Morning Joe to talk about Hillary Clinton's pneumonia. 
and the buck and the basket of deplorables. <laughs> that I found myself on Al Jazeera talking about, again, Hillary Clinton's pneumonia and the basket of deplorables. And then I gave a major lecture with all of the high highfalutin uh, people in the humanities at Princeton. And then I found myself in a car flying to, uh, flying to the airport to get here, and now I'm with you. Uh, it's a blessing. And I hope that what I have to say uh, will uh, prick your imaginations, will provoke you, because these are dark times, yes? Ralph Waldo Emerson tells us that God speaks through our imaginations. I love telling my students that. I often ask them, though, if this is true, then what is the devil doing? <laughs> in so many ways, at least this is what I try to suggest in my work and in my witness, that we are experiencing in this country, in this moment, a crisis of imagination. And I mean by this something more than a failure to be creative, but something much more about who we take ourselves to be. Something about who we are as Americans has gone out of focus. There's some sort of major moral failing defines our way of being in the world. Now, to my mind, imagination registers much more than creativity and the ability to trade in that which isn't real, the fantastical, right? Imagination is something more than that. And here I'm thinking about that moment. I'm going to be a professor now. In Shelley's a great defense, his, in Shelley's defense of poetry, he writes, quote, a man to be greatly good must imagine intensely and comprehensively. He must put himself in the place of another and of many others. The great instrument of moral good, pastor, the great instrument of moral good is the imagination. Here, imagination involves an ability to see the as yet a willingness to look beyond the opacity of now to see what's possible. Imagination involves a kind of empathetic projection, what my favorite philosopher John Dewey describes as that animating moral judgment, that is feeling our way beyond the narrow consideration of ours alone to take up the concerns and aspirations of others. Shelley's point. The great instrument of moral good is the imagination. That claim understood in the context of this claim, we are experiencing a crisis of imagination. We find ourselves in these dark times unable to imagine the world otherwise. The world as it is seems to be our permanent docking station not only blocks our ability to see what's possible, it impairs our ability to empathize with those who are not us, inverted commas. Y'all all right? I'm just checking on you. <laughs> I went to Morehouse, so there's some Baptist waters in me. <laughs> you know. This crisis of imagination says something about our characters, who we take ourselves to be. Remember, imagination is bound up with that ability to empathize, sympathize with others, to see yourself right, in someone who's not you. Right? Putting oneself in the place of another and of many others. Right? 
But we live in a time where the superordinate value seems to be putting oneself over and against another. So all we need to think about is our presidential election. We saw what happened in Asheville, North Carolina last night, yes? Folks throwing punches at each other, claiming that folks are bigots, that folks are ugly at the core, that they're going to take America back, make America great again, and doing so in the name of a kind of ugliness that I find deplorable. Oh, there's that word. But I want to take this back. I want to take it out of the easy target, at least for someone like myself, of Donald Trump. I want to think about this in the broader context of, you, of the United States. We live in a society where we can tell ourselves that we've turned an economic corner, that we have come out of the Great Recession. And when you look at black and brown communities in this country, when you turn your attention to those who are not, quote unquote, one of you, what do we see? Uh, we don't see a community that's come out of, right, depression or uh, come out of economic recession. We see a community struggling to make ends meet, right? I interviewed a young woman by the name of Christine Frazier. Uh, I write about this in the book. And Christine uh, did every, played, every, played by the rules, did everything right, right? Her husband died. She lost her job, and she couldn't make ends meet. She couldn't pay her house note. And, and the sheriff's office came in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and they unlocked the door. And they told her and her, grandma, her mother and her daughter and her grandson to get out. And they proceeded to empty the house of a lifetime worth of minerals, to put all of it in the yard. She said, they came into my home like I was a drug dealer. But they knew that dogs were there. And she said they told her they didn't, she, they didn't have anything, any place for her to go. And they said to her, you have to figure out what you're going to do. But they knew dogs were there. So they called Animal Shelter. Mm. And she said the pain of losing the house was one thing. But they came with the place for my dog. We live in a country right, where we can talk about turning a corner. But there are people right in our midst right, who are struggling to make ends meet, people who are working hard, who are honest, who are trying to make ends meet. But we disremember. We think it's their fault. So in the book, I talk about the Great Black Depression. I talk about the fact that black folk lost their homes, over 240,000 homes lost as a result of the collapse of the housing market. I talk about right, the fact that over 38%, 40% of black children are growing up in poverty. I talk about the downward mobility as African Americans experience the loss of incomes, the inability to dream big dreams for their children because they can't make ends meet. And we live in a country Right? This says we've turned the corner. Right? But let me say this really quickly. Y'all all right? I don't know why you invited me here. I'm going to tell the truth. <laughs> I'm going to tell the truth. In my mind, democracies require particular kinds of dispositions to work. But something has distorted and disfigured our national and individual character. Remember I said there's a crisis of imagination. Imagination involves what? Not only just simply the fantastical and the creative. The imagination involves what? This ability, right, to see oneself 
put oneself in the position of another, that it has something to do with our characters. I want to say that something has distorted and disfigured who we take ourselves to be, and I call it the value gap. Now I'm about to get into the substance of it, taking my watch off. <laughs> what is the value gap? The value gap is the belief that white people are valued more than others. Oh, I'm going to say it again. The value gap is the belief that white people are valued more than others. And this belief isn't the possession of loud races, people running around with white sheets over their heads or swastikas tattooed on parts of their body. Rather, this belief animates our social practices, our political arrangements, and our economic realities. This belief that white people matter more than others distorts our characters and deform our democracy. I like to tell the story of, of, of my father, who was the second African-American hired at the post office in Pascagoula, Mississippi, the place where uh, William Faulkner honeymooned. <laughs> and back then, getting hired at the post office was high cotton, right? And so he knew he had precocious kids, so he decided to move us from the east side of Moss Point to the west side, on a hill, Briarwood Circle. And as we were moving into that house, I'm playing with my Tonka truck. You remember those old Tonka trucks? I'm playing with my Tonka dump, dump truck, and, and I'm making my dump truck noises, and all of a sudden I hear an adult say, stop playing with that nigga. And it's the first time I had been called that word in that context. So I grabbed my truck, and I took it inside, and I took it to my father, my father who doesn't suffer white people easily. Right? Ran outside, and he did whatever he did. But that's how we typically tell the story of American racism, right? Some black family achieves the American dream. They move to a big house on a hill, and then some child is wounded by some mean-spirited adult who calls them the N-word, and then that child has to work all of her life to prove that she's not that. Oh. But that's too easy. It's too melodramatic. It's too all my children-like my mother's favorite soap opera. <laughs> because I already knew at the age of eight and nine years old that we were moving from the black side of town to the white side of town. I already knew because Rose Drive, where we used to live, because the pipes are bad, every time it rained, it flooded. No, 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 no. I already knew because the sidewalks weren't, as as the sidewalks weren't paved like they were on the west side. The baseball diamond wasn't cut as regularly as it was on the other side. The houses were smaller. The schools weren't as fine as the town. That side of town was subject to layoffs by Ingalls, the shipyard, paper mill. I already knew in the very built environment that something said that those folk over there were less valued than those folk over here. Hmm? We want to look for the bad racists. Right? The obvious races, but we are making choices day in and day out right? that sustain racial inequality in this country. My colleague Imani Perry calls it a cultural practice of inequality. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I believe the planet is actually getting warmer. <laughs> All right, you feel me? It's hottest summer on record, hottest year on record. But if you look at my house, and you look at my car, and you look at my light bulbs, you look at the way I live my life, the daily choices I make, you would think I believe the planet was all right. My day-to-day -day behavior suggests that I am a climate change denier. 
So there are folks running around here who are saying that they are committed to racial inequality, uh, racial equality, but their choices. I just want my kids to go to the best schools. Social sciences have already, the social sciences already said that whenever you hear that phrase, it's usually a proxy for how many black and brown kids attend my school. I want my neighborhood to be safe. We know what that means. I want my property values to stay. We know what that means. Right? So it's in the kind of order, the cultural practice, the value gap is, is, is evidenced. Let me give you a quote from James Baldwin in the uses of the blues. Y'all all right? Baldwin clearly states what he takes to be the Negro problem. I'm talking about what happens to you. If you've barely escaped suicide or death or madness or yourself, you watch your children growing up, and no matter what you do, no matter what you do, you are powerless. You are really powerless against the force of the world that is out to tell your child that he has no right to be alive and no amount of liberal jargon, no amount of talking about how well and how far we have progressed does anything to soften or to point out any solution to this dilemma. In every generation, ever since Negroes have been here, Baldwin writes, every Negro mother and father has had to face that child and try to create in that child some way of surviving this particular world some way to make the child who will be despised not despise himself. I don't know what the Negro problem means to white people, Baldwin writes, but this is what it means to the Negro. What does it mean to try to construct an idea of the self in a country that is organized in every single way on the basis, on the grounds of the value gap? Not because people are mean-spirited, but it's because it's in the very DNA of the country. And this is what makes addressing the problem, I'm leaving my notes now, this is what makes addressing the problem of white supremacy, of racial inequality in this country so difficult because we refuse to look the ugliness of who we are squarely in the face and dare to imagine ourselves differently. This is hard work. This is hard. The value gap isn't sustained by loud races. The value gap is sustained by all of us. All of us. You, you don't need white people for white supremacy to work. When I'm in New Jersey and I'm driving down Stuyvesant Avenue in Trenton, I hold a set of generalizations about the people who occupy that particular neighborhood. It's known as Little Iraq. I keep my head on a swivel. Right? There's a kind of particular fear that gets generalized, that gener is generalized to an entire population that informs a set of assumptions about how I interact with them. And those generalizations have policy implications. We are socialized and habituated into believing, right, certain things about certain folks. Right? I write about this in the text. There are... Uh, Nancy DeTomaso uh, at, at Rutgers, a social scientist, she did a series of interviews of white working class folk uh, in, in Ohio and in Tennessee and in Jersey, I believe. And she said she was interviewing these workers and, and one worker said, I just, I'm sorry, I'm, black people are just lazy. They just want a handout. You've heard this before. It's been informing public discourse since I can remember remembering. And they don't want to work hard for anything. And it turned out that his father was close friends with 
the union boss who hooked him up with a job. Another interviewer, right? I'm sorry to say, they're just lazy. They don't want to work. It turns out that not only his friend gave him, the, gave him the test that he needed to take for his job, gave him the answers to the test. And what Nancy's trying to suggest in this moment is, right, not that there is some, right, overt racism that's happening. People are just hooking up their friend, friends and families, right? You've that it's what she calls opportunity hoarding. That racial inequality actually is, is uh, perpetuated through social networks. Right? And because we're so deeply a segregated society, social net, our social networks are typically, 75% of our social networks are 100% homogeneous. So opportunities pass through certain networks that do not pass through others. Right? I'm just helping out my child. I'm not being racist. Right? I'm just helping out my neighbor. I'm not being racist. I said something jokingly to a friend the other night. I said, if we want to solve black-on-black -black crime in the United States, we just need to integrate neighborhoods. And they didn't quite get it. I said, <laughs> some of you didn't get it either, right? Most crime takes place right, because of proximity. Why don't white crime? 83% of crime that happens in white communities happens between white and on white people. 91% happens between, because our neighborhoods are segregated. If we all move together, then we'll just be criminal with each other. <laughs> Racial habits. The value gap distorts who we take ourselves to be. It blocks the way to the formation of the kinds of people democracies require. I was just talking about, uh, with, with Reverend Hart Anderson, about Abraham Lincoln's rejection of the monstrous injustice of slavery, but his commitment to the belief that white people were superior than black people, and how those commitments blocked the way from him becoming the kind of human being his idea of democracy required. What does it mean in our country that we can hold the ideals of democracy and when those ideals are extended to black and brown people, we are willing to erode the social safety net? Right. Welfare, for much of the New Deal, right, was in fact a project of Southern Dixiecrats aimed at addressing poor white Southerners. But the moment the face of the welfare state became black, as my colleague Martin Gillies writes. It became right, an emblem of the problem with big government. What happens when we're willing to turn our backs on an idea, a robust idea, of the public good because it involves people who are not like us? It means that we're willing to throw democracy into the trash bin over, over the idea, over our commitment to the idea that some people, because of the color of their skin, are valued more than others. It's the value gap is at the heart of our problem. The value gap is evidenced in our habits, habits of living, habits that define where we live, where we work. I can't begin to tell you how often I'm having to, I have to leave the particularity of my experience at the door in order to make white people comfortable. Almost as if, as James Baldwin writes in Notes of a Native Son, we have to make ourselves blank in order to wash away your guilt. 
And so we dance this dance, America's racial theater. It's this dance so that you can't be called a racist and I can't trigger your fears. Huh? The worst thing that you can be called is a racist, even though everything that's coming out of your mouth, Donald Trump suggests otherwise. We find ourselves in this dance, unwilling to confront the ugliness of who we are. Just think about this. The last piece of great legislation passed in the great society was the 1968 Fair Housing Act. I'm watching my time. Twelve years later, Ronald Reagan is elected. Twelve years later, there is the triumph of a political ideology designed to undo the great society and the New Deal. Did we fix the country in 12 years? 1965, the Voting Rights Act. Right? By 1980, wholesale attack. We don't need to protect them anymore, right? Shelby, we don't need to do it. And what happens after the Shelby decision recently, right? We get a proliferation of attacks on voter registration, voter IDs, right? Think about it. At every turn, at every moment of progress in this country, we have seen a reassertion of the value gap. At the moment in which we give voice to the principles of liberty and equality, right, in the context of the American Revolution, what do we get in response? We reconcile those principles with racial slavery. John Adams, it is said, said to King George, we will not be your Negroes. At the very moment in which he's giving voice to an idea of freedom, is predicated upon an intimate understanding of unfreedom a reassertion of the value gap. In the moment of radical reconstruction, we offer right, a vision of multiracial democracy. What do we get in response to radical reconstruction? We get convict leasing, right? Convict leasing. You wouldn't have the city of Birmingham without the labor, the forced labor of convicts, quote unquote. People arrested for what reason, right? Slavery by another name, as Brother Blackman talked. And you get Jim Crow and a reassertion of the value gap in the context Right, of the black freedom struggle of the mid-20th century, everyday ordinary people demanding dignity and standing, what do we get in response? We get the tax revolt in Northern California. And we get calls for law and order. Value gap. What do we get when we elect our first black president and we think we turned a corner? We get the vitriol of the Tea Party. And we get a wholesale attack right, on the voting rights of black and brown peoples. At every turn, at every moment of progress, we, that progress is arrested by a reassertion of the value gap. We have to do the work, but we're afraid. We are afraid. White fear has driven this country since its founding. Think about Rep. Thomas Jefferson's notes of the state of Virginia. I'm going to come home. I'm trying to get there. Right? Think about it. He said, I tremble for this country because of the sin of slavery. Right? He was afraid of what that meant, the divine punishment that would come for holding another human being in slavery. And he writes that particular formulation in the section on habit formation. Because he said, what happens to a child who witnesses the violence of slavery? Something is broken on the inside of such a child who experiences that. Something happens to their character, Jefferson suggests. But in that moment of fear, right, it drives policy. Think about, right, the fear of Abraham Lincoln in the second inaugural, supposedly the second founding. Think about the fear surrounding black rage with the Black Panther Party. You know, 
that cover of the New Yorker where they had Obama dressed as a Muslim and Michelle Obama as Angela Davis. And they were bumping fists and people were like, what does that mean? Did they just, they bumped fists. Did the black people just begin revolution? <laughs> Fear. Fear drives policy. The moral panic surround the so-called super predators where the, the data suggested was not true. What did the moral panics do? It drove mass incarceration. Think about what happened with the Central Park Five. Those babies were innocent. Their lives stolen. Think about all the millions of folk who are locked up because of fear. Fear, driving policy. We can no longer be afraid. And that fear actually drives our political behavior, black political behavior. As I said earlier, we're afraid to trigger your fears. So we will grit our teeth in the moment which you say something a little off color. Our fear of triggering white fear affects our behavior. So we're masking day in and day out, walking past each other, not really seeing the humanity of, our, of the person right in front of us. No wonder we're stuck. Hmm? But Malcolm X said this, and I'm going to say this in front of you guys and make you mad, I don't care. <laughs> we have to stop sweet talking. <laughs> Tell you how we really feel. Tell you what kind of hell we've been catching and let you know if you shouldn't have a, if you don't clean up your house, if you're not ready to clean up your house, you shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Now, I'm not trying to burn down anybody's house. But what Malcolm is talking about is frank speech, that we have to confront each other honestly. One of the most exhausting things I have to do is to convince my fellow white citizens of what is happening. Every time we have to engage in this haunting public ritual of grieving in public, we got to convince you that it happened. What does it mean that Diamond Reynolds' four-year-old baby had to muster the resources to comfort her mother in that moment? I'm here, mama. I'm here with you. What does it mean that Alton Sterling's 15-year-old baby crying, weeping, because he lost his father, wouldn't see him again? What does it mean that if it wasn't for the footage around Walter Scott, that police officer would still be walking the streets? What does it mean that I have to tell my child right, the story of how to interact with the police because I want him to come home? What does it mean that here I am, I've done everything right, I'm at the height of my profession, I'm the president of the American Academy of Religion. The day I got the call for that that I won, my baby calls me from Brown to tell me that he's sitting on a bench doing an assignment and a police officer drives up, blocks his way, his way out, comes out to who are you and why are you here? He says, I'm a Brown student just doing an assignment. The police officer hits him in the face with the, with the flashlight, looks at his feet, looks at the bushes, and tells him the park closes at 9.30. And my son says, yes, sir, but it's only 6.30. 
And then the partner, his partner, walks around the police cruiser and says to him, and both of them lean in with their hands on their weapon and say to him, the park closes at 9.30. And my son puts up his hands and says, we don't want any trouble. I could have lost my only child that day. And I got to convince you of what that means. We're not going to fundamentally change unless we look ourselves squarely in the face. You learn race in Minneapolis by just simply driving around this community. It's in the very built environment. You don't have to be a bad person. It's how we are habituated as citizens of this country, a country that has been drenched right, in the reality of white supremacy. We have to address it. We have to address it if we're going to get beyond it. So what I call for is a revolution of value. We need to change our view of government by changing our demand of government. We need to change our view of black people by changing our view of white people, and only white people can do that. And we need to change what ultimately matters to us. If we have a society predicated upon greed and narcissism and selfishness, we will continue to produce the likes of Donald Trump. But it's in our hands. I refuse to dance the dance any longer. For my grandchildren who are not here, I refuse to try to make you feel comfortable. Because I know of a man who was crucified on Calvary, who refused to become adjusted to injustice. What does it mean to bear witness to the virtues of generosity and humility and justice in this moment? It will require something monumental of us, something profound. Value gap, racial habits, fear requires of us a commitment to democracy in this sense, we have to become the people that democracy requires of us. That means we have to reject the idea that this is God's gift to the world, that is America, is the shining city on the hill that rigs the argument. No, we need to look ourselves squarely in the face in great pain and terror and do the work of actually achieving our country. I pray that we do so. Because if we don't, we will certainly see the fire next time. Thank you. So this particular uh, video is a bit dated because it goes back to 2016. Um, certainly. Uh, the elements that he communicated to us will also be applicable to other races uh, and other religions as well. Um, it's, he's talking primarily about uh, the Black experience, uh, but 
that could also be true uh, for Middle Eastern people. It could be true for Jewish people. It could be true uh, for people who uh, have a different uh, experience in life, um, uh, a different ex uh, set of circumstances and that type of thing. So um, when we talk about equality, come back to the beginning, it's complex, isn't it? It's very complex. And it is something that is applicable to a variety of different types of people. And here we are in the melting pot of a nation that um, wants to simplify things when it can't be. But I thought Eddie Glaud Sr. really did a good job of no describing the, um, the, the inequality that we are trying to uh, talk about a little bit tonight. So any comments or questions before we close off tonight? Interesting that that, that uh, presentation was given in Minneapolis. Yeah, prior to the George Floyd incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Nice observation. Yeah, anything else? Okay, so now we're seeing all that history and all the personalities that we've been talking about the last several weeks. Now we're seeing how that comes together in some of these perspectives like equality. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, ecology. And um, he mentioned the climate crisis. A lot of that is driven um, because of greed and other things too. So we'll try to talk about that a little bit and then we'll close off from two, week, two weeks uh, from tonight. Um, so um, any other questions before we wrap up? No. Okay, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you have a great rest of the week and we'll see you again next Wednesday, okay? Thanks, Larry. Thanks. All right, you're welcome. Bye. Good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.